All right. Hey, we're entering the heart of summer, which means we're entering into the heat of summer. And that got me to thinking how uh, we usually begin spring with great relief because of the warmer days ahead, especially this year because we had a really cold spring. Um, I always say the coldest uh, weeks of the year are the first two weeks of high school baseball season because you think, hey, it's baseball season, it ought to be 80 degrees, and it's not. Um, it's about 40 degrees during those first two weeks, and at least it seems that way, and those two weeks seem to take about three months this year. So I was looking forward to warmer days, but if you're like many people, you get that kind of spring fever when some of the warmer days come ahead, and so you might go out on that first really warm day in, in May and start to get flowers for your flower beds or seeds for, for vegetable gardens or, or whatever it is that you do that you like to do outside. And that first week or two, man, you're out there and you're pulling weeds with great enthusiasm because you know what is going to be a result of this. You're going to have this garden or, or this flower bed that you just absolutely love. And so you're, you're pulling the weeds with great enthusiasm. And then you get to that kind of third or fourth week. And you still maintain it because you know what the end result is going to be. But it's done with a little less enthusiasm, isn't it? Now it's just more of a chore, more of a task. Then you get to that fifth and sixth week, and when the hot weather starts to come, like it's been hot this week, and that garden that you planted that was once a great source of enjoyment now just seems more like a chore. And you might even start to look out your window while you're sitting in the air conditioning and thinking, you know what, I'll get to that in a day or two. It can, it can wait a, a couple more days. And before you know it, you look out the window and you notice that your once pristine garden or your pristine flower bed is completely overrun with weeds. It doesn't take long, does it? It just takes a little lack of, of enthusiasm, a little lack of desire to maintain. And all of a sudden, everything that you've worked so hard for is now compromised. Just like weeds in a garden that we don't have the desire, the concern, or the will to pull anymore, the church at Thyatira, which is the church we're going to talk about this week, they didn't pull, the, pull out the weeds of sin in their lives. And because of that corruption, and the church began to take over. If we don't labor to pull sin out immediately and persistently, it will take over. So let's just be upfront about that right off the bat. If we don't work, actively work, all the time, to keep sin out of our lives, it will not take long for sin to take root in our lives and as a result in the church. Last week we studied how the church of Pergamum, that was the church we talked about, was warned about their worldly compromises and, and they, had, they had a few weeds in their garden that need to be removed. But what was just beginning to happen there had come full bloom in Thyatira. As, as one person wrote, said, if the church married the world in Pergamum, in Thyatira, they were celebrating anniversaries. This is the church, this church that we're going to talk about today, is the, is the church that tolerated sin, they absorbed sin, and then they lived happily ever after with it. You know, you know, I might say something like sin, and they would say, what sin? I don't see any sin. That was the attitude of the church there at Thyatira. The Lord introduces himself accordingly in verse 18 of, of chapter 2. He says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished brawn. Jesus says, these are the words of the Son of God. And I think that's interesting, and I want you to catch this. This is the only time in Revelation that the name Son of God appears. Son of man is often used, and it's used to emphasize Jesus' humanity. But Son of God is used to emphasize Christ's deity. It's his way of saying, hey, I want you to know who's talking to you because I have the authority of God. I am 
God. So when I speak to you, you should listen. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, I come to you with the authority of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. In other words, his piercing eyes, it it sees through their condition. It it sees through all of their facades that they might have put up. He sees all of their darkness with perfect knowledge and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Bronze was the strongest metal of, of that day. And so he lets them know that, hey, I see you from a position of authority, a position of strength, and a position of holiness. There are a couple of things that we can learn about the church at Thyatira. The church of Thyatira had potential, they had problems, and they had a promise. And we're going to talk about those three things today. The potential, the, the problems, and the promise. Even among the corrupted church, Jesus fi- graciously finds something good to say about them. He doesn't flatter them, but he encourages them those that were still sincere in their relationship with him, that they were improving. And so Jesus says to them in Revelation 2.19, he says, I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. After, after reading that verse, if we were to stop there and not read anything else, the, especially the following verses, we might think, hey, this is the model church. This is the church that we want to strive to be. This, is, this should be our desire that our last works are better than our first works. Each day should be better than the day before. We sing that hymn every now and then, just a closer walk with thee. And, and that should be our hope and our desire, that every week we'd be, we would be a little bit closer than the week before, that we're doing more now than we did at first. In fact, Thyatira was the only church out of the seven that were commended for their love. This church seemingly is not only loving, but they're growing and acting out of love. And looking from the outside in, this would look like an impressive church. They're growing, they're working, they're ministering to the needs of others. You know, when I leave this world, whenever that is, I want my last day to be my best day. I want to be kind of like Enoch, walking so close with God that once I die, the only surprise is the surroundings. I said, oh, I was here and now I'm there. That, that's kind of what I want my life to be like. And that's seemingly, at least from this verse, what you get the impression that the church at Thyatira was. But before we praise them too much, let's keep in mind this, that you can find love outside the church as, just as easily as you can find love inside the church. The church in Ephesus, remember we talked about them a few weeks ago, what Jesus told them, he said, you have lost your love. Remember? You can find love in some of the most unlikeliest places. You can find love in third world slums where you might expect nothing but pain and suffering. But surprisingly, there are people there, there are, there are those who sincerely care and love to help one another. This might come as a shock to some of you, for some it won't, but you can find love amongst inner city gangs. Gangs who... Gang members who grew up without family, who are some of the hardenest of criminals, but they have found love inside their gang because they, they became a family. They might hate everybody else, but they love one another. Police will even tell you that. I don't mean to diminish Thyatira's love. My point is, is that love isn't exclusive to the church. We, we can have a church that loves and still be far from the church that Christ desires. Both churches in Pergamum and Thyatira prove that. There can be many good things, at least on the surface, and seem to be very effective, like numerical growth and and, and nice fellowship and faith in God and perseverance. Yet at the same time, evil can take root and dominate the church. Some might have said about the the same church today, if if they were still in existence, you might look at them and say, wow, I mean, look at all the things that church is doing. The sky's the limit for this church. They're going to accomplish great things. They're they're so accepting and, and a loving church. Look at all the activity and the people and the growth. 
You know, we seem to, in the church world, have, seem to have two extremes that, that I think we've got to avoid both of. We need to avoid both the ditches. We have on one side the churches that are, that are strict in holiness and doctrinally narrowly, narrow-minded perfectionists who are loveless and ruthless and offensive. And then on the other side, there are the, those who are purely emotional and sensational and sentimental and mushy and lovey-dovey and, and with absolutely no regard for, for holy standards whatsoever. Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, walk in love just as Christ loves you, so we ought to be loving. But in the very next verse, he says, but do not let immorality or any impurity be named among you. In other words, don't have, you know, have some standards, right? You, you can love people. That's great. We want to love. We, we should be known for that. But don't tolerate sin. Flee from all of that stuff. Be filled with love, but not filled with sin. Don't let your love blind you to sin. So in, all, in spite of all of the good things, good indicators that the church had there in Thyatira, that they had potential, verses 20 through 23 show us that they also had some problems. Here's what Jesus says. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misled my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The, the city there, Thyatira, was a wealthy trade town uh, on the Lycus River in the Roman province of Asia. It, it was basically used as a shield for Pergamum, the, the city we talked about last week. Every conqueror who came to conquer Pergamum first conquered Thyatira to get there. Their, their history shows that they were constantly being destroyed and taken over and rebuilt, perhaps because it was the smallest of the seven cities in Revelation, that, so it was just easily conquered, or perhaps it was because they had no defense. They had no military. They had no strategic positioning. But, but in the next verse we read that just like the conquerors who had their way with Thyatira, there was a false prophetess who had her way with the church, and for the most part she conquered it. Because there was just no will to stand up against her. So in, in the scripture she's listed or named as Jezebel. Now Jezebel was most likely not her real name. Jesus gives people names based on their character. And no one during that time would have ever named their daughter Jezebel. In fact, I don't know one, one female that's ever been named Jezebel. I don't know if you know a Jezebel. I've, I've called a few people Jezebel, but I've never, I've never met one named that. Because it has such a bad connotation, right? We know that, that she's a bad woman. She, that's, that's a bad character to be named after. If you don't remember who she was from the Old Testament, she was the daughter of Ethbal, who King Ahab married. And she brought paganism to Israel. Now, why the king of Israel would marry the daughter of his enemy, that doesn't make sense to me, but you know, I didn't live during that time either. So, But... If you recall, Elijah, the prophet who went up against King Ahab, who was legendary. I mean, we, we remember all of the great stories about Elijah, how he called fire down on, uh, from heaven on Mount Carmel, how he defeated the 450 priests of Baal, and how he raised a dead boy back to life. And yet in 1 Kings 19, we read that, that he ran for his life from this woman. This mighty prophet who, who everybody holds in the highest regard ran for his life from Jezebel from Queen Jezebel. She was not a nice person. In fact, I think maybe along with Judas, she was probably the most wicked, immoral, shameless person in all of Scripture. She would defile Israel at any cost, and she didn't care how she had to do it or who had to suffer as a result of it. When, when she died, she was thrown out of a window where dogs came along and ate her up to the point where the, when they went to bury her, there was nothing but a skull and bones, palms and feet, just 
fulfilling Elijah's prophecy of her. And there was a reason that that was prophesied about her. Because that was not a burial fit for a queen, is it? Nobody liked her. And yet here in verse 22 of of chapter 2, Christ gave this woman, whoever she is, the name Jezebel, because she had the same character. And he gave her time to repent. And just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, she arrogantly defied God to the end. You know, a proud heart makes a, a hard heart. And there is nothing more shameful than to see a hard heart defy the grace of God. But this is where things get a little complicated and, and interesting. Because you see, in Thyatira, there were, there were many trades. There were bakers and potters and tanners and basket makers and dye traders. Lydia, you might remember from Acts chapter 16, she was the seller of purple. She was from Thyatira, and some actually suggest that she probably even started this church here. But, but Thyatira, they were, because of their industry, they were known for their trade guilds or their unions. And their, their unions were similar to ours. They were to protect the workers, but they were a little different in that each union had its own god. And if you were employed by, by this union or that trade guild, you were automatically associated with a religious group who worshipped that god. And those worships uh, activities were typically associated with some sort of sexual immorality and debauchery. You know, as a Christian, you might go to uh, your spouse's company picnic and, and you might complain because there's behavior that's a little offensive. You know, there's, there's too much drinking or, or the language isn't quite what you would hope it to be. And, and, and so you just kind of complain about it. But can you imagine belonging to a union that meant attending feasts in honor of false gods or idols and being required to attend? Right? This is, part of, this is part of your acceptance into the union. You have to attend these. And then you have to participate in all of the activities that take, take place afterwards. It, it is plausible that there would have been those participants who were a part of these unions showing up at the church in Thyatira. Where a very domineering woman that Jesus calls Jezebel was not only defending idolatry and, and immorality, but promoting it within the church. And sadly... Seemingly nobody stood up against her and a majority of people fell in line with her, apparently, anyway. How did she do that? How does one person corrupt so many people? Well, we don't know how she exactly did it, but she probably did it very cleverly, although I believe demonically. She probably reasoned with them, hey, it's okay to participate in those activities because Paul said, you know, we live under grace, not the law. She could have said that, but I think more than likely she probably just suggested a, a, a dualistic idea. That, hey, it's the spirit that God is concerned with. You know, God looks at the heart. He's not so much worried about the flesh. After all, you can't change it. You can't control it. So don't worry about what it does. Your, your body belongs to the God of this world, to Satan, but your spirit belongs to the God of heaven. Now, hearing that, that doesn't sound really theologically sound, especially if you've been in the church for a long time. That sounds like a heresy. And guess what? It is. But imagine being a person living in that environment where your job expects you to behave one way and that an immoral way and you come to church you come to this body of believers and there's a person within that a prominent person within that who's saying you know what the things that you're doing over there they're not so bad after all in fact god is more concerned with your with your spirit and and not your physical activities and, and you might start to reason that, you know what, you know, I felt kind of bad about that. But this person over here, somebody that I respect, somebody that I look up to, somebody that's, that maybe is closer to Jesus than I am, at least the appearance of anyway, they're saying that this is okay. So maybe what I'm doing is not so bad after all. 
It's amazing what wicked things that we allow in our lives with some, some very twisted theological rationale attached to it. She couldn't just walk into the church that was founded upon the rock of Jesus and say, hey, listen up, everyone, I'm a prophetess, and, and you are now free to participate in all the idolatry and, and sexual immorality that you want to. She couldn't do that. She had to slowly make sin seem normal. You know, it's just a part of the job, which sadly it was. And then once guilt overcame them, purpose, purposely misinterpret Scripture to justify their sin. It's amazing what one phony person can do to a church. It's amazing what one person with, with some just twisted theological rationale, with some misinterpretations of Scripture can do to a church. It's amazing to me that, that we normalize sin. But look around, and we talked a little bit about this last week, look around our culture. We have no shame or decency about anything anymore. We're not shocked by anything. We're, we're offended by a lot of things, but that's the cult. Everybody's offended by something, but we're very rarely offended by sin. And so we've just normalized sin. And as a result, the church has suffered. Our influence has suffered. And, and it's all because, in some cases, multiple people, but at least here in the church at Thyatira, because one person, one person, just misinterpreted the scriptures and led people astray. I, I read a kind of a Reader's Digest story this week about a farmer who asked a restaurant owner if he wanted a million frog legs. The owner was always looking for new menu items, and, and he thought that would be a good idea. And so he asked the farmer where this farmer could find so many frogs. And the farmer said, my pond is full of them. It's overflowing with them. Their croaking is driving me crazy, and, and I'd love to get rid of them. And so the farmer and this, this restaurant owner, they made an agreement that the next week the farmer would bring as many frogs to this owner as he could. And so the next week the, the farmer shows up and he's got one scrawny little frog and a little bit of a look of embarrassment about him. And he says, I was wrong about the million frogs. It was just this one making all the noise. I can't believe one frog could make so much noise. It was just one person corrupting the whole church in Thyatira. But one is all that it takes. And so that's why Jesus is so adamant here. That's why he calls her a Jezebel, because one person was all that it took. Look, we're going to talk about sexual sin and immorality here, and, and I get that it's something that we don't want to talk about in the church because it makes us uncomfortable. It's, it's one of those things that when everybody, that, this topic comes up, you, everybody gets a little tense. And if you're visiting with us, if this is your first Sunday with us, man, you picked a great Sunday to join us, right? I promise you this is not the topic we talk about every week. But... I had, a, I had a great uncle who thought you should never talk about this in church. Uh, on Wednesday nights in my home church when I was a teenager, we had Wednesday night Bible study. And before that, we would always have a meal. And then, you know, the adults would stay and the youth group would go wherever. And so this particular Wednesday night, the adults were going to start a Bible study on Song of Solomon, which if you have read that is, is a pretty graphic uh, love story. And so after dinner, my great aunt and uncle, they got up to leave. And as they're walking out... The preacher, Greg Bowen, bless his heart, said, Hey, Bob, where are you going? And my uncle Bob said, Well, I'm going home. And he said, Well, we're getting ready to, to start Bible study. He goes, We shouldn't be talking about this in church. And my preacher said to my uncle, He said, Well, well Bob, that's part of the scripture. If it's there, we should read about it. And he said, Yeah, but part of your Bible was meant to be read at home. And I get that. That's a lot of people's mentality. I get that. I understand that. Look, I spent more time this week editing and going over my manuscript for, for the sermon than most others because it makes me uncomfortable to talk about it in public. 
I want to make sure that I don't say anything that can be misconstrued or make someone think something that is not intended. But that doesn't mean that we can't or we shouldn't talk about it. In fact, I'll even go as far as to say is that of all the things that are crippling the church today, I believe nothing is crippling the church more than sexual immorality. We live in a culture that has dramatically changed in the last 50 years. And the beliefs that many of you might have been raised with concerning sex and sexual purity are not the same as what many of our students are being raised with now. And let me tell you, both might be members of the same church. But because of the rapid change in attitude towards sexual immorality, many within the church have either decided, hey, I'm just going to stick my head in the sand and pretend it's not a big deal, or we've looked around at culture and we've just become desensitized and indifferent to it. But let me give you some statistics about this topic that proves that it's a big deal. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to pornographic websites. There are 42 million pornographic websites, which totals around 370 million pages of porn. That industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography is a problem in their home. And the use of pornography increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. 11. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. That's fourth grade for most people. 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 70% of Christian youth ministers reported that they had at least one teenager come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the last 12 months. This is where it gets really concerning, if all of that wasn't concerning enough. 68% of church-going men view pornography on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for pornography. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once a month, so it's not just a man problem. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say that they never watch pornography, and 87% of Christian women say that they have. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say they have watched pornography at least once in the last month. Those statistics are staggering. This is a major, major problem, and it's a major problem in the church, and we have become too indifferent or desensitized or too embarrassed to talk about it. But we are surrounded by such a sexualized culture that that we don't even blush anymore. And let me tell you, when we aren't shocked by sin, we stop seeing sin as dangerous. When we're not shocked by sin anymore, it stops being dangerous. And that's a, that's a bad position to be in. That's a risky position to be in. Sexual sin can sideline us and ruin us like no other sin. Why? Because so often it's, it's a secret sin. It's one that we hide from everyone else. It's one that we wrestle with, with behind closed doors. And, and you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. We were not meant to live alone. We were meant to live in community with one another. There's a reason why we're told to build one another up and, and to do life together. Constantly in Scripture, you see people coming together in groups. There's a reason for that. Because when you struggle alone, when you struggle in secret, you struggle alone. And when you struggle alone, you're apart from community. And guess what? You're more susceptible to sin. You're more susceptible to Satan. 
So we got to be on guard, and we got to have guardrails in place to protect us. The, the believers in the church at Thyatira, they were doing a lot of great things. They were growing and improving. But this one issue, this one thing was derailing the whole church. It was crippling them. So what, so what can we learn from the church at Thyatira? How do we protect ourselves? Well, like I said, we got to guard ourselves and have guardrails. So we got to know the danger. That's the first thing, know the danger. I remember going to camp, to 4-H camp as a kid, and one of the first things that we got to do there was to shoot a gun. But before they even let us handle a gun, the first thing that they taught us was firearm safety. We needed to understand and respect the gun before we were able to shoot at a target. Because a gun can be a powerful tool. Or it can be a dangerous weapon. It all depends on who's handling it. And when we fail to appreciate the danger is when we become, is when we become careless and when someone gets hurt. The writer of Proverbs says, Can a man scoop a flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? So it is with the man who sleeps with another man's wife. He who embraces her will, will not go un, unpunished. He's saying, hey, can you play with fire and not get burned? No. Can, can you flirt with pornography? Can you flirt with someone that's not your spouse? Can you operate outside of the boundaries that God has established in His Word and not get you into trouble? No. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he said, run from sexual immorality. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. He says, run. Paul doesn't say flirt with it or fool around with it or see how close to the edge you can get before, before something bad happens. He says, no, run from it, flee from it. It's the idea of you're walking this way and you see it coming and you turn around and you run as far away as you can from it. He goes on to say, he says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So honor God with your body. So we got to know the dangers because it's dangerous. Secondly, we got to know ourselves and set boundaries for ourselves. You know, we have a tendency to not be honest with ourselves. We tend to lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves that, that we don't have a problem, that we can just handle things. Uh, and, you know, primarily when we tell ourselves that, it's when we're way in over our heads. Listen, if you know this is an area of weakness for yourself, be honest with yourself. Don't, don't pretend that you, that you couldn't be sidelined by, by something like sexual sin. Solomon warns us in Proverbs 4, he says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart. Be, be vigilant, not, not carelessly walking through life. Anybody ever be walking somewhere down a sidewalk or maybe just outside or wherever and you walk into a cobweb, you didn't see it there, and you just walk into it, and, and then what do you do? You start doing all of this stuff, and if someone were just to pass you by and they didn't know what had happened, you'd look like a crazy person, wouldn't you? You're just kind of flailing around trying to get that cobweb off of you. And, and for, for those of you that have hair, I can't imagine how much more difficult that is for you because luckily for me it just kind of wipes right off, but you know it gets stuck to your hair and, and all of that kind of stuff. You look like a crazy person. If we aren't careful, sexual sin does the same thing to us. It just causes us to flail around in life. If you have struggled in your past, or maybe you struggle with this right now, there is lots of help available. There are tools to help you protect yourself from falling, from failing. Don't give yourself the opportunity to be put in a position of trouble. Look, almost all of us carry a, a gateway to sexual sin in our pocket. Every day we carry it around with us. There, there are apps that can get you into trouble. People in your contact list, friends on Facebook or Instagram, endless web pages. Think about this. Would you be ashamed for someone to find your phone and what they might find on your phone? 
Are there texts or, or Facebook messages that you wouldn't want your spouse to see? Are, are there pictures that would destroy your, or, or hurt your spouse? Be honest with yourself and know your weakness. Paul said, so be careful if you are thinking, oh, I would never behave like that. Let this be a warning to you, for you too may fall into sin. So know the dangers and, and set boundaries. The church at Thyatira didn't do a very good job with that. They didn't recognize the dangers and they didn't set any boundaries. And because they didn't set any boundaries, everything was up for grabs. Everything was game. They had some serious problems, but they were not without hope. Because the church at Thyatira also had a promise. You get to verse 24, we read this. He says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, this is Jesus speaking, to you who do not hold to her teaching, that's Jezebel, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. What an amazing grace that is. The only thing that Jesus asked of those who, who didn't fall to the false prophetess was simply, hang in there. I am, I am almost there. I'm almost, I'm on my way. Don't give up. He, he commends this group in the beginning of this letter. And in verse 26, he promises that they're going to have authority over nations. The, the Son of God has been given authority, so His authority is, is it's His to distribute to whomever He wishes. And He offers reward for those who overcome this Jezebel, this, this prophetess, if they'll just hang in there, if they'll just not give up, if they'll just stay strong, keep running the race, so to speak. I read a parable about a man who wanted to sell his house in Haiti for $2,000. Another man wanted to buy it, but because he was poor, he couldn't afford the, the, the full price. And so after a lot of bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the, the house for half of the original price. With just one stipulation. And that one stipulation was this. That he retained ownership of one nail that protruded from the front, from the front of the house just over the door. They agreed to that and so the man, the man bought the house. A few years later, the original owner wanted to buy the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell. And so the first owner went out and he found the carcass of a dead dog. And he hung it from that single nail that he still owned. And soon the house became unlivable. The family was forced to sell the house to the owner of the nail. You know the moral, what the moral of that parable is? Is that if we leave the devil with even one small peg, with one small nail in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making our lives unfit for Christian living. This church... The church at Thyatira, it was teetering on going the right way or the wrong way. They, they had a choice to make. They could follow Jezebel or they could follow Christ. And unfortunately, history shows that this church didn't heed Christ's warning because the church fell prey to, to more heresy and they went out of existence at the end of the second century. What about us? What about us? What, what is it that is, that is knocking at the door of our lives individually but also as a church? What is it that makes us unfit for Christian living? Where we're giving Satan just enough room. Maybe there's, it could be a, a myriad of, of things. But I, like I said, I think the one thing that cripples us more than anything else is sexual immorality. Impurity. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah, it says, Elijah went before the people and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is your God, follow Him. But if Baal is your God, Follow him. And then it says one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. But the people said nothing. But the people said nothing. 
What does it say about people when given a choice between two gods that they remain silent? It says the same thing about Thyatira, a church that tolerated sin hanging around in their church, and, they, and it ended up being their downfall. Look, I get that this is an issue that's uncomfortable to talk about. It's uncomfortable for me to talk about. It's uncomfortable for you to sit here and listen to me talk about. But we have to choose purity. We have to choose purity and follow God regardless of what culture might expect from us or tell us to do. If the Lord is God, then follow Him. When it comes to to sexual purity and immorality, know the dangers. Know yourself and and set boundaries. And once those boundaries are set, don't compromise on them. Stay true to what God has, has placed in His Word, the boundaries that He set in His Word. I get it, the, the common thing that I hear from teenagers and young adults is, well, Christians just, that book was written a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. It's, that book is not useful in today's world. Now, I can tell you that much of what it says doesn't go hand in hand with today's world. But it doesn't mean it's not useful. In fact, I, I would tell you that I think just the opposite. If we spent more time paying attention to what was written in God's Word, we wouldn't encounter all of the problems that we encounter right now. What are we going to choose? We're going to choose purity or we're going to choose immorality? Are we going to go with what God says or are we going to go with what culture says? Because every day we're going to make a choice. And look, this church has lots of potential. Look, we got Ford coming in in, in a couple years, two miles down the road from us, 5,000 families uh, you know, eventually moving somewhere into our area. That's a lot of people that we can have influence with. There, it could be said about us that we have tons of potential. And look, I don't know what's going on in everybody's personal life. I don't know the personal issues that you struggle with, but I know this. Everybody struggles with something. And most of us, when we struggle with something, we struggle in secret. We struggle alone. Look, you don't have to come to me and confess all your sins. That's, that's between you and God. But if you are struggling with a sin, get in a group somewhere. Do life with somebody who can help you walk through that sin, who's not going to shame you and, and, and guilt you about it, but it's going to hold you accountable for you, with you, and walk, walk through with you, and walk out with you. Don't, not someone that's just going to stay there and let you mire in the mud and wallow in the mud and say, oh, well, it'll be all right. No, 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 that's not a friend. We want friends that are going to pick us up out of the mud and walk out of those sins with us. That's what we want. So if you've got a problem, find somebody. Me, somebody else, I don't care. Find somebody. Don't wallow in mud in those problems by yourself because there's a promise that Jesus is coming back for those who will just stay faithful. If you'll just hold on, there's a promise. Don't give up. Don't give in. There's a promise. There's a hope. Choose God. Choose culture. Which way are you going to go? Let me pray for us.